This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Sigma out of micro four-thirds, ancient galaxies, death threats over photos, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 319 for February 26, 2023. And as usual, we're going to start off today's episode by heading over to Petapixel. Sigma won't make new lenses for micro four-thirds as demand dips. Sigma CEO Kazuto Yamaki says that the company doesn't plan to develop any new micro four-thirds lenses due to demand that is decreasing very sharply. In an interview with Phototrend at CP Plus in Japan, spotted by four or three rumors, Yamaki says that while Sigma has several four-thirds lenses in its current library, it does not have any plans to develop new ones. Currently, Sigma produces just three lenses for micro four-thirds, which are made for a group of other crop sensor mounts and most recently released for the Nikon Z mount. Quote, the demand for this format is decreasing very sharply, and therefore it is quite difficult for us to develop completely new optics for this ecosystem, he says. This is the first strong statement from any lens or camera manufacturer about the state of demand for micro four-thirds that comes across this frankly. In the past, Micro Four Thirds member Panasonic has said that the company doesn't intend to move away from the format in order to continue to support its users, but it has not spoken so directly about product demand for the system as Sigma's Yamaki has. Quote, I hope that with the arrival of the new OM system cameras, demand will stabilize, but it is clearly trending to decrease for Sigma Micro Four Thirds lenses. But it looks like OM System is getting good results with their new cameras and lenses, so I'm hopeful that the demand for Micro Four Thirds will continue to exist. It doesn't end there, as Yamaki also explains that APS-C demand is falling. Quote, I think the Micro Four Thirds has many advantages, especially in compactness. Personally, I really like this system, but currently the trend is clearly in favor of full frame, alongside APS-C, which is also in decline, by the way. It sounds like full frame is the future, at least from a product development standpoint. Yamaki's statement basically brings an end to what the brand started in 2011 when it said it was expanding to support the format due to increasing demand in the compact camera market. The companies that are active members of Micro Four Thirds basically never say anything like this, and Sigma is in a prime position to speak about the demands of a system relative to others since it can very easily track how many lenses it sells for Micro Four Thirds versus the other mounts it supports. If Yamaki says demand is low, there isn't really any reason not to believe him. Micro Four Thirds has advantages, but demand is driven by consumers who have for years now treated the format like a second-class citizen. Despite recent evidence that the quality of images taken with Micro Four Thirds are very good, the format bears the stigma that the opposite is true. Luckily for Four Thirds shooters, the lens library for the format is quite strong, so it's not like there's a death of the options. 
uh, dearth of the options, I'm sorry. Sigma also indicates it doesn't intend to stop supporting the format, but the company's words are worrying for those concerned about the system's future. And this makes total sense to me. And and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing micro four thirds. I have a lot of friends that shoot micro four thirds and absolutely love it. But as Yamaki said, if the demand for micro four thirds mount lenses is down considerably, then there's no reason for Sigma to continue to develop new optics formulas for that mount, as they're not going to get any return on their investment. They'd end up losing money. So it's absolutely logical for them to decide to bow out of making those lenses from now on. James Webb photographs ancient massive galaxies that shouldn't exist. The James Webb Space Telescope has been used to identify six galaxies that potentially emerged extremely early in the universe's history and are so massive they should not be possible under the current cosmological theory. An international team of astrophysicists discovered these mysterious objects in images captured by the James Webb Space Telescope and estimate that they may have existed at the dawn of the universe roughly 500 to 700 million years after the Big Bang or more than 13 billion years ago. Not only are they ancient, but they are also massive and contain almost as many stars as the Milky Way galaxy. Quote, it's bananas. Erica Nelson, co-author of the new research and assistant professor of physics at Colorado University Boulder, says, quote, you just don't expect the early universe to be able to organize itself that quickly. These galaxies should not have had time to form. The researchers have published their findings in Nature, and while these aren't the oldest galaxies that JWST has identified, Last year, scientists noted several galaxies that likely formed around 350 million years after the Big Bang, and one called Glass Z13 dates to just 300 million years after the Big Bang. But the size and age of these objects together have the potential to rewrite astronomy textbooks. These objects appear red in the JWST images. Red light usually means old light. And the scientists explain that as the universe expands, the light objects emit stretches out. The more light stretches, the redder it appears to instruments like Webb. Quote, they were so red and so bright, Nelson says, we weren't expecting to see them. Current calculations suggest that there should not have been enough matter in existence at the time these galaxies appear to have formed in order to make up their size and number of stars so quickly. And yet, these galaxies exist. Not just one, but six. Quote, the Milky Way forms about one to two new stars every year. Some of these galaxies would have to be forming hundreds of new stars a year for the entire history of the universe, Nelson explains. If even one of these galaxies is real, it will push against the limits of our understanding of cosmology. That last note is important. If these objects are what they appear to be, it would fundamentally change current beliefs about the universe. The team is planning to use JWST to collect more information on these objects to verify their findings. So it's definitely some interesting information, and it's incredible some of the new objects that the James Webb Space Telescope has allowed scientists to find in areas of our galaxy as well as the universe as a whole. On hate mail, when your photography attracts death threats. There's only so many times people can threaten to kill you before you start to wonder if they might be serious. 
About a month ago, my second book came out. It's called Invited to Life. And it's little genre bending, a photo illustrated 224 page prose poem about my seven years meeting and interviewing refugees who happened to be Holocaust survivors who came to the United States exploring the new lives they built. It's an intentionally lyric work, an intentionally American work, and an intentionally hopeful work. And it's earned me, in those several weeks since, about two dozen different pieces of hate mail from strangers, people accusing me of various moral crimes, people writing to share their favorite ethnic slurs, and yes, several who have threatened to kill me. The good news is, at least nobody has knocked the photography, and this is just a crazy story, Now that's why I wanted to cover it. It all began a few months ago when, and you're about to read this correctly, a white supremacist showed up at an exhibition I had up at New York's Center for Jewish History. What was he doing there? I don't know. How did he get in? I don't know. I assume he was on his way to the fabric store to buy fresh white sheets and got lost. Perhaps he just needed a bathroom desperately. Nevertheless, somehow or other, a person who hates just about everybody ended up at my show and started a thread about it on a white supremacist website. It's an interesting read. I've seen it. What these folks lack intact, they more than make up for in what we'll call improvisational spelling. The frontier of their supposed supremacy also ends far, far short of standard grammar as well. But there they are, all in a group, chatting as casually about this as you or I might talk about whether the avocados in front of us at the supermarket are ripe. They're not. They never are. My name, the Hotsy Totsy Nazi, insist, is a, of good Dutch provenance, surely. I must be a race trader. But my Facebook photos, which someone felt the need to trawl through and repost, betray a face of great ethnicity. Uh, Probo Probosis that enters a room unfashionably earlier than I do, a tan that rises when even gently frisked by the sun. The jury being out, I begin to receive notes largely by email accusing me of, well, everything. I'm a pawn of the Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. I'm an embarrassment to the Aryan people. One oddly woke supremacist says I shouldn't have done this project because I'm obviously not Jewish. Another implies I shouldn't have done this project because I'm obviously not Jewish. I don't know why that line was in there twice. I'm the lying media. I'm the lying media. I'm the lying media. Fake news, fake news. It's surprising I'm able to sit at all. What with the problem of my indistinguish, inextinguishable pants? <laughs> On the day of the book's release, a gentleman using a nom de plume, nom de doom, sends me an email accusing me of being part of the Zog conspiracy, which I have to look up after I confuse it with Superman's nemesis, General Zod, with whom I have never, ever conspired. His subject line, Invited to Death, which sounds like the name of an absolutely terrible punk rock band. Invited to Death, a bunch of vaguely smelly guys who growl into a microphone about how terrible life is before returning to life living in their mother's basements. You know, just like the people who send hate mail. I do not think many photographers receive angry mail from strangers. I certainly hope most don't. But I suspect I'm not alone. There is a presence to photography, a frequent theft of agency that perhaps invite insult.
And I, a fairly non-threatening, friendly presence in the photography world, have to be pretty far down on the list when the universe is handing out nasty grams. And yet my first book on American poets would occasionally earn a note from a poet who's been excluded, sometimes a reminder that some people can push a noun against a verb to blow something up, but more often a clear and an inarticulate demonstration of why the person was excluded in the first place. When two days after the murder of George Floyd, I made a photograph of a black protester on an Arkansas street who I'd personally seen spend his day being called terrible things that went fairly insanely viral, somebody went to the trouble of setting up a fake account on Twitter, an online forum for hate speech, just so angry people could have the satisfaction of having somebody to holler at. Strangers on Reddit, where I, also, I am also not, took plenty of time to try and discuss the matter in just the most similarly delusive tones. When I photographed the protester, I'd seen plenty of bikers ride by on purpose to yell obscenities at the protester and his friends. Turns out some of the bikers, too, had the time to tell me they were upset about my mention of that. A week later, the phone rang while I national menace that I am was sitting on a bench outside a Cinnabon. When I answered it, somebody in Arkansas recited only the address of my tough guy veteran father and immediately hung up. You can imagine with me the scene that might have become a bunch of people standing out in the hallway of my father's apartment building watching a good old boy struggling to pick up his teeth with his broken fingers. This sort of thing is, of course, nothing new. I'm sure there were mayors all over Samaria with waste bins full of angry tablets delivered by soon-to-be arrow-pierced couriers. And on a certain level, I'm even personally sort of habituated to the vitriol of perfect strangers. My annual year-end post has always earned a little perennial weird mail. And before Petapixel instituted a wise filtering policy on reader comments, Articles, including my work, were often greeted on departure by the usual sort of comments from top lofty readers proclaiming for all and sundry my lack of worth. I've been writing the piece you're currently reading for about a month, teetering back and forth, weighing the pros and cons about whether to weigh in at all. I sat down for conversations with about eight different people I know who I'd heard received lots of negative attention, museum curators, phonojournalists, writers, a politician. But the one that struck closest was a comedian being dead serious. I first came to know the popular comedian Steve Hofstetter during a photo shoot a few years back. The humor artist is himself no stranger to the vagaries of Internet hostility. Quote, fame is a fickle food, wrote Dickinson, and few spend as much time at the buffet as Steve. He's been so thoroughly vetted by the Internet commentators that the FBI have had to be called in on at least one occasion. Quote, the thing about it, Steve said during our shoot, is that the people who do this, who leave the comments, who send the mail, they're never creators. They're never people who've actually done anything, who've made the art, who've written the book, who've gotten on the stage. Steve and I have since become friends in spite of our clear contemptibility to the masses. And when the current exhibition of book came around, I sat down with him to chat a little bit about hate mail. At the time, I was getting it on all sides. The revenants of ignorance had come out of the gutters to tell me I need to stop serving waves hand vaguely the Jews. To complain that the book is not Jewish enough or too Jewish or that Jews exist at all. 
to tell me that I need to address the situation in Israel as if that is something that I, an American photographer, am suddenly able to do. As if I could pick up my specially made blue and white phone and just say, hi, this is the uh, Knesset. Y'all don't know me from the dark side of your butt cheeks, but some guy in Williamsburg just emailed me free Palestine, so I think you should do that. Is there a free Palestine button on your desks? If so, press it. Thanks. It is difficult to underestimate <clears throat> these folks, but when the white supremacists started posting about me, something Hofstetter had left uh something Hofstetter had left at him as well. I wanted to talk about the implications too. I suppose the art of the work. Years back, yet another white supremacist site started a thread on him. Hofstetter's life was turned upside down. Quote, for a couple of months, they were saying just horrifically terrible stuff, he recalls. One sympathizes. I get through my day without thinking about it much. What worries me is not my safety. A comedian at a bar has never been killed. My ego doesn't say I'm important enough to be the first. Quote, my response is to keep going, says Hofstetter, and get on stage and ask why Britney needs a conservatorship and Kanye doesn't. We live in an age now where everybody has a microphone and more importantly, everybody has a megaphone. The question for me becomes, why bother? I do not understand the people who spend their time waging hate campaigns. I do not understand the people who take the trouble to email random photographers who make books about American pluralism or chase around comedians who spend most of their time trying to dodge hecklers in taverns. I do not understand why they do this with their one and precious lives instead of hanging out in the park, kissing people or going to a ball game. I do not understand the folks who hang out on Tumblr and Twitter and Reddit and photography websites to leave comments about how much they hate what they see. It seems significant that it never that it never seems to come from the people who've actually done, who've suffered the fear of putting their work into the world, who've written an article, who've gulped as they put their byline on something, who've stepped out onto a stage. The people who write me to tell me they hate what I've written are never writers. You can tell, if for no other reason, by their spelling. Quote, it is extremely easy for someone who does not create to tear down those who do, muses Hofstetter. I find that the practice of creating sympathy for those who do, it's Dunning-Kruger. The less you know, the easier it is to misunderstand those who can't criticize. There's one difference between he and I and seemingly all of the people who I spoke with while thinking about this article. I do not respond. They all seem to. Quote, I choose to engage with the comments because of the algorithm, Hofstetter admits, because of the engagement. But it'd be great if the algorithm didn't reward that. Part of this current trend is entirely due to the anonymity of the Internet. Most of the emails that have come my way arrive from fake email addresses and fake names. Part of it being is driven by the fact that grown adults can now get the adrenaline of the playground insults they used to get when they were first children without any of the repercussions or consequences. But part of it is something larger. Hate mail is a good thing. That is not, of course, empirically true. It's terrible. And I can assure you that it's not pleasant. And I can assure you that I, like the 140 Holocaust survivors I've met, choose to respond to hate with some level of humor, as well as some occasional Brahmadanigan vocabulary that our detractors can't quite understand. 
But more importantly, it's this, artists, writers, creators, the goal is to start the conversation. The goal is to bring in the greater response, to turn the eye to empathy, to broaden the viewer, to introduce the new perspective. The person who writes the hate ma- hateful email, the person who starts the 17th piece nonsensical Twitter thread, that's a person who has, at the end of the day, been given a perspective other than their own, but cannot process it. Hate mail is, in a way, a reward. These Those photographers who make calendars of nice pictures of puppies have overserved bank accounts and empty inboxes. Man, this is just crazy. In my own case, all I did was write a book about how America is large and contains multitudes, how people can overcome trauma, how folks of many religions, backgrounds, orientations are the thread that stitches together the national fabric. And the mail means one thing. There's enough truth in it that the people who are bothered by it most are must resort to shouting to avoid a conversation they don't like, must resort to banging their shoe on the podium. That the only way to fight the truth is to try and scare the person who's telling it. Few things in this world are better confirmation that you are doing something right than somebody otherwise unremarkable taking huge swaths of their mediocre day to tell you you're doing everything wrong. Perhaps it's a good question in one's artistic practice to ask, quote, how my work bothers Nazis. It is a good question in one's artistic practice to remember that the thing about hate mail, perhaps, is that you should learn to love it. And if you can figure out how to do that, hey, drop me a line and tell me how. Man, that's really crazy. I can't believe this photographer got so much hate mail and death threats over a photography book about Holocaust survivors. That's just insane. And in my day and age, it's just ridiculous. I, I can't support any of this. It's, it's ah, I can't fathom. I never tried to turn this podcast into anything political, but white supremacists are definitely one of the groups of people that I think should not be allowed First Amendment privileges. Sony's Cybershot F505 remains a clever camera 24 years later. Photographer Gordon Lang of Camera Labs is back with another edition of his retrospective retro review video series. This time, Lang focuses on the Sony Cybershot DSC F505, a consumer-oriented digital camera released 24 years ago. The vintage 505 supports a distinct L-shaped appearance with its body split into two halves. One half comprises the lens, image sensors, and some camera controls. The other half includes the screen, battery, memory card, and primary controls. At its release in 1999, the $1,100 CyberShot camera's 2.1 megapixel image sensor was relatively robust. The sensor is paired with a Carl Zeiss-branded 5X optical zoom lens. Due to the camera's rotating body design, it was possible to flip the main camera body up so photographers could more easily shoot at waist level. It was a clear or a clever alternative to today's popular tilting rear displays. The F505 can even rotate in the other direction, allowing easier shooting when holding the camera above your head. Now, I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. 
The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag liamphotopodcast. And now back to the show. And we're back and continuing on this story about the F505. The 505's built-in lens offers an equivalent 38 to 190 millimeter zoom range, which is relatively long at both ends of the zoom. Lang notes that not only that only some of the F505's contemporary rivals started at a much wider focal length, which does little to lessen the disappointment in 2023, when practically every all-in-one camera offers a wide-angle focal length. As Lang shows, the 505 zoom rocker switch delivers impressively smooth control over the camera's zoom. The lens stays bright throughout its range, ranging from f2.8 to f3.4. Along the lens barrel are buttons for macro mode, white balance, spot metering, and a switch to swap between autofocus and manual focus. Atop the lens, it's a pop-up flash. As Lang observes, the bottom of the lens includes a tripod thread, which is cleverly located beneath the optical axis, allowing free movement of the rear camera body section while it's mounted. The F505 lacks a viewfinder, leaving the camera's 2-inch display as the only means of composition. The screen uses a transflective hybrid panel, which can either reflect ambient light to save power or switch to a conventional backlight under dimmer conditions, says Lang. The panel can be excellent in the right light, but challenging to see in other conditions. Returning to the image sensor, the F505 uses a 2.1 megapixel half-inch type charge-coupled device CCD image sensor. The resulting 1600 by 1200 resolution seems paltry today, but was reasonable in 1999, especially given high storage costs at the time. And there's some beautiful images in this story that I highly encourage you to check out. The F505 also records video enabled with a still movie switch. Video performance is abysmal with resolution ranging from 160 by 112 to 320 by 240 at 15 frames per second for up to 15 seconds. It's possible to record at the lower resolution for a full minute, assuming the user keeps the shutter release depressed. Even though the video specs are laughable today, the fact that the 505 records audio alongside the video and allows for relatively quiet optical zoom during the recording sets it apart from its rivals. Like many of Sony's cameras, the F505 records to proprietary memory. Sony's new-at-the-time memory stick format. Sony bundled its F505 camera with a meager 4-megabyte card, good for around 8 photos using the best quality settings, says Lang. Thanks for that. Combining a new proprietary format and a lackluster bundle didn't win many favors. The camera is powered by an NP-FS11 infolithium battery which tells the user how many minutes are remaining, a clever feature. The F505 includes a proprietary USB plug for some reason, but the camera did ship with a cable to connect the camera to a computer. Quote, I'm not ashamed to admit I loved the F505 when I originally reviewed it back in 1999. 
And my feelings haven't changed today, remarks Lang. Like many in the F-Series before and after, it represents Sony's design and engineering teams at the top of their game. Not afraid to experiment, but delivering products that we were surprisingly intuitive to use. Lang found his used model for a mere 15 euros or about $18. Money well spent. <laughs> and it does has made some beautiful images. He's gotten some really fantastic images with it. Lang's full written review on Camera Labs includes additional sample images, plus an in-depth comparison with a few of Sony's other F-Series cameras, including the controversial F505 successor, the F505V. Additional camera and tech-related videos are available on Lang's YouTube channel, DinoBytes. So I highly encourage you to check it out for yourself. And like I said, don't miss a chance to stop by the show notes, go to this article and check out the beautiful photographs that he managed to capture with that vintage camera. And now we head on over to Canon Rumors. Casino will announce a Nocton 50 millimeter F1 as spherical for the RF mount. Cosina has recently been teasing new prime lenses for various mirrorless mounts, including Canon's RF mount. The new lenses from Cosina will have electrical contacts for added functionality with your RF camera. For Canon shooters, Cosina will announce a Nocton 50mm F1. Cosina lenses have been very popular with the rangefinder community as Nocton prime lenses are highly regarded for their value. Upcoming Cosina lenses, the Nocton 50mm F1 spherical RF mount, the Nocton 35mm F0.9 spherical X mount, the Nocton 55mm F1.2 SL2S, Ultron 27mm F2 X mount black, and the Ultron 27mm F2 X mount silver. And it's definitely some interesting things coming from Cosina. A 50 millimeter F1. Impressive. The Canon EOS R5 Mark II will arrive before the EOS R1. There have been some rumblings about a follow-up to the brilliant Canon EOS R5, and while there are none that we consider super reliable, the chatter continues. We were told over the weekend that the follow-up to the Canon EOS R5 will likely arrive before the Canon EOS R1. No time frame for either camera was given by the source. We posted about the Canon EOS R5 Mark II back in November, but we haven't heard anything serious about the camera since then. Below are the rumored specifications from November, and I would take them with a huge grain of salt at this point. The rumored specifications, new 61 megapixel CMOS BSI sensor, dual digit 10 processors, 30 frames per second electronic shutter with tracking, 12 frames per second mechanical shutter, same 8-stop IBIS, new high-resolution mode similar to pixel shift shooting found on Sony and Fujifilm, 2 times, 4 times, and 8 times digital teleconverter, same dual-pixel CMOS AF2 from the Canon EOS R3 and R6 Mark II, internal 8K 60p video recording, 8K RAW video spec to be confirmed, internal 4K 30p, 60p, and 120p video recording, all by oversampling, full HD 240p video recording, focus breathing correction for video, new overheat prevention design similar to the EOS R6 Mark II, at least 40 minutes for 8K video and over. 
60 minutes for 4K video, dual C of Express Type B card slot, standard HDMI port, dual USB C port, 9.44 million dot EVF, new design of the very angle LCD monitor optimized for video shooting, and a launch time of quarter two of 2023. Now, Keep in mind, these are all strictly rumored specs, and this may never happen. However, also keep in mind that Canon managed to sneak out the R6 Mark II when nobody in the industry was expecting it. So will they do it again with an R5 Mark II? Highly likely, but we'll have to wait and see. And now we head on over to Nikon rumors. The electronic custom shutter sound selection function is coming to the Z9. The electronic custom shutter sound selection function initially presented a year ago during the 2022 CP Plus live streaming event by Tosakawa San and Yokata-san is finally coming to the Nikon Z9 camera. This function will be released soon, according to the latest Nikon represent, uh, presentation at the 2023 CP Plus show in Japan. The live stream was in Japanese. Here is the translation sent to me by a reader. The electronic shutter sound selection function topic 2.0713. Currently, three types of sounds are available. Type A, Z9 standard sound. Type B, DSLR-like sound. Type C, film camera-like sound. In addition, the volume control has five levels instead of three. The volume of level five is slightly louder, and the volume of level one is quieter. New maximum volume, level five. New minimum volume, level one. The cat's meow is not listed. Therefore, a poll was held. Would you like sounds other than the camera shutter sounds? The result was 93% yes from the live audience. Finally, a letter was sent from Nikon developers about the electronic shutter sound selection function. Last year's electronic shutter sound selection function was a technical prototype for the enjoyment of CP Plus 2022 visitors. There were no plans for product implementation. However, due to the cancellation of the on-site event at CP Plus 2022, we decided to introduce this function in our online event. As a result, we received far greater response than we had imagined, so we decided to officially implement this function in the Z9. These shutter sounds, as well as Z9 standard sound, have been prototyped and tested many times. The official release of the electronic shutter sound selection function will come at a later date. So that's definitely interesting, and you can watch the accompanying YouTube video if you want to. You can find that in the show notes. Two more new third-party lenses from Nikon Z-mount. TT Artisan's 100mm f2.8 and Mikkei's 60mm f2.8. The TT Artisan is rumored to announce a new 100mm f2.8 2x macro lens for the Nikon Z-mount. Venus Optics and Samyang already have 100mm f2.8 lenses on the market. Mike announced the new 60mm f2.8 APS-C manual focus macro lens for the Nikon Z-mount priced at $189.99. The lens will start shipping on March 10th. Additional information is available here at this accompanying link in this article in the show notes. More third-party lenses for Nikon Z-mount can be found at an accompanying link. So definitely interesting to see more new third-party lenses coming for most all camera mics and models. And now over to Fuji, uh, Fuji Rumors, DP Review TV, Fujifilm X-T5 Final Review the true successor to the Fujifilm X-T3. 
And you can order a Fujifilm X-T5 mirrorless camera in black, body only, for $16.99 at B&H Photo. DP Review TV published their final review of the Fujifilm X-T5. Down below, you find the video and a summary. The DT, DP TV Review, uh, let's see, more compact X-T3, a like body, but a bigger, better grip. Still holds well with bigger lenses. It's his favorite handling Fujifilm body so far. Highest resolution on APS-C, fantastic colors and color profiles. Low light is excellent on this 40 megapixel sensor. If you look at it pixel per pixel versus the 26 megapixel sensors, you might notice the 40 megapixel is noisier. But we have these extra megapixels, and if you look at the same viewing size, it's not really going to cost you anything in terms of low light performance. At very extreme ISO, you'll see slightly better noise performance on the lower res sensor, but is still minimal, and he'd rather have the extra megapixels. Dynamic range, thanks to lower ISO base, uh, base ISO, the sensor has really good ability to push shadows. Best dynamic range of any Fujifilm camera. Weakness of this sensor is readout speed. It's BSI, but not stacked. Electronic shutter readout. The X-T5, 37 milliseconds. The X-H2S, 6 milliseconds. And the X-T4, 25 milliseconds. Slower readout even than the X-T4. You have 15 frames per second burst in mechanical shutter versus the 13 frames per second in electronic. One of the best mechanical shutters he has ever used. Quite stable, does not move camera even when shooting rapidly. Manual focus, not great punch in magnifier. Quite mushy and soft, really hard to get fine focus. Very effective face eye detection for portraits on slow moving subjects. Great accuracy on iris. 15 frames per second tracking on Jordan running does a fairly good job, but there are a few shots where it focuses on his body rather than his face. Once Jordan got closer to the camera, he was impressed, and the X-T5 did a really good job. Overall, a decent autofocusing camera. Tracking box with static subjects, it can work very well, focus lock on subjects and recompose, but there are occasions where it jumps to busy background. It does not happen often, but when it does, he has to refocus and recompose. Sony and Canon still have slightly better autofocus. The X-H2 and the X-T5 have same sensor, but very different video performance. Full-width sensor 4K readout on the X-T5 is subsampled, so it has less detail and worse low-light performance than the oversampled 4K HQ of the X-H2. 4K 60p has a slight crop. The X-T5 has a 4K HQ mode downsampled from 6K, but this has a huge crop. The area used is slightly larger than one of the Micro Four Thirds sensors. Suffers rolling shutter and oversampled mode. Stability errors when shooting longer video clips. No stability problem in stills mode. Overheating is not uh, an issue. Stability is far more of an issue in video. Writing errors can occur. If you care about video, then this is absolutely worth. Then it is absolutely worth it to get the Fujifilm XH2. It's really a photographer's camera. Very functional and very good looking. A little bit more compact. The X-T5 is the true successor to the X-T3, one of Chris's APS-C cameras as far as image quality goes. And you can order the Fujifilm X-T5 from B&H Photo, Amazon US, Adorama, and Moment, as well as the X-H2 and the X-H2S. And you can watch the full DP Review TV final review video 
on their YouTube channel, and you can find that video in this article in the show notes for today's episode. Camland 70mm f1.1 for the Fujifilm X-Mount unveiled. Camland has unveiled their second f1.1 lens for Fujifilm after this one, the Camland 70mm f1.1 for APS-C at the CP Plus show in Japan. You can see a video and images below. It will join other lenses that Camland is already offering for the Fujifilm X-Mount, such as the Camland 8mm f3, the 21mm f1.8, the 28mm f1.4, the 28mm f2.8, the 50mm 1.1, and the FS 50mm f1.1 Mark II. Definitely interesting, and you can see the video on the YouTube channel, as well as check out the images in this article in the show notes for today's episode. And now we'll head on over to Sony Rumors to wrap things up. New products seen at the CP Plus Tokina booth. At the Tokina booth, following interesting products have been displayed. Tokina SZ mount converter, EF to FE adapter. The release date is March 24th. The suggested retail price is 41,800 yen, tax included. What's unique is the presence of a mode switch, mode one for still image AF and mode two for movie AF. And it is an interesting looking adapter. The Zakina SZ Super Telefinder lens. It is a so-called dot sight that makes it easier to follow the subject when shooting with a super telephoto lens. The release date is March 24th. The suggested retail price is 65,780 yen, tax included. It is made of metal and solid structure is impressive. It also has water resistance, 10 levels of laser brightness adjustment. The power size is a, uh, power supply is a CR2032 battery. They also displayed the new Tokina SZ 300mm f7.1 Reflex MFCF SZ 600mm f8 Reflex, the MFCF and SZ 900mm f11 Reflex MFCF. And you can see images of all of these lenses and items in this article in the show notes. And last for today's episode, Sigma at CP Plus 2023, quote, we want to launch more unique lenses. PhotoRend talked to Sigma manager Yamaki, and here are some takeaways. Just like Sony, Sigma wants to develop multiple group AF, which helps increase focusing speed as well as image quality. Full-frame lens demand is strong, APS-C lens demand is in decline, and micro four-thirds lens demand in a sharp decline. And here now to the very interesting part, quote, we intend to release more innovative and one-of-a-kind lenses. We have in our portfolio all the basic optics. Also, we will be able to advance towards different objectives. They will be remarkable for their focal length, their aperture value, their size, or even for their ability to meet specific needs. Because the demands of photographers are are diversifying. In the past, people were content with a 24 to 70 lens and a 70 to 200 telephoto lens. And eventually they acquired a 16 to 35 or a 12 to 24. Today's photographers also like to use very bright primes, long range telephoto lenses, or ultra wide angle lenses. These are the type of lenses we want to launch for today's photographers. It really sounds like Sigma wants to make primes with f1.2 or faster, and I hope they will consider making fast f2.0 zooms as well. 
And that is going to wrap up all the news and rumor stories for this week. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 319 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. If you're not currently a subscriber, why not? It's absolutely free. It doesn't cost you anything. And I have a large catalog of back episodes and interviews that you can go back and listen to. Also, remember, my latest contest is still ongoing where you can win yourself, have a chance to win yourself a Platypod Extreme flat tripod. There's 53 days left in that contest. So get your entries in now. Also, remember to stop by the Lean Photography YouTube channel. Subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new videos drop. And I will see you all again on Thursday.